You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Hey, Chris, what are you drinking there? Oh, you never seen one of these before? No, what is that? Oh, man, this is Brewery in Austin, Circle uh, Brewing. They're uh, right near my house, right up on uh, Breaker Road. They got their own brewery with a bunch of stuff. This is actually, you're going to you're gonna think I'm lying. This is, I think, the best American Hefeweizen I've ever had, Circle Brewer. It's made in America. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's yeah. high praise coming from you. We'll take a sip of this thing. Try that. All right, let me see. No, no, no. That wasn't the Hefeweizen. That was the IPA. Yeah, no, I... That was the fantastic. Ladybird. Yeah, that that's good, too. Man, they make a lot of good beers. And like I said, you can come visit them at their tap room right down the street here from me uh, on, on Breaker Lane. It's... um. It's delicious stuff, and they actually became the sponsor for the the website, oneofus.net. Wow, good guys, and they live right down the street from here? They certainly do, and you can even get their beer in convenience stores now. Ah, convenience store. I'm going to just walk over to Circle. Oh my god, god guys, it's the next to last digital noise before Christmas! Woo! Exciting. Digital noise! And I got my buddy Aaron here with me. Ooh. How you doing? <laughs> I, I don't know why I did the, I just did this little kissy face because, you know, I'm on video right now. Yeah, and that we communicate as well. Not on video. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> there is no video, not this time anyway. But we have a stack of movies to talk to you about, as, as Aaron mentioned earlier. Pretty much horror movies. Yeah. At least in one context or the other. Yeah. Although we've got a, a movie in here that I think we both think is in the top five films of this year. That I, a lot of people... what I think it is. Yes. That a lot of people have not seen or is not even on their radar. Yeah. I just is, have to tell you, my wife kind of hates you now because for the last two weeks, I have only watched two types of movies. Either cheesy, shitty uh, Netflix Christmas movies, uh-huh. or super fucked up horror movies. Yeah, she hates Nothing me? Else. How's that on me? <laughs> You're the one who chose to watch the Netflix <laughs> Christmas movies. I blame you for everything. Oh my god. Well, that's fair. Everybody else does too. Uh, well, let's get started by talking, of course, about our sponsor, Circle Brewing, uh, Circle Brewing which you can find at circlebrewing.com. Uh, they are a wonderful little Austin local brewing company that I've been a fan of for some time. If you want to visit their tap room, they're at 2340 West Breaker Lane, Suite, Suite B. Super friendly people. They got like old school video game setup you can play. And, I always think when they do that. Yeah. And uh, uh, um, a, board, a whole rack of board games you can play and stuff. There's a nice little patio and there's plenty of parking. Really like these guys a lot, and I really like their beers a lot, which you can also get in even not just your your craft brewing stores, but uh, uh, you know not just at your specs or what have you, but also you can get at your local Seven Elevens. Oh, I did not know that. I will have to go yeah. get some. I am enjoying an Alibi right now, which I have to point out. I just now realized it was Alibi and not a Leapy. Because I'm dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I love this Alibi. <laughs> Almost said that. It's the Alibiest. Uh, they have a lot of different beers to choose from, though. Uh, I just recently discovered how good their Envy Amber is. It's Ooh. now officially up on my list of my favorite Ambers in town. Um, as well as I've, I've talked quite a bit about how much I like uh, their IPAs, which are all strangely really kind of interesting but not painful i'm gonna call them seductive seductive i really like their uh, tuxedo t-shirt black ipa but right now of course you guys know me i'm drinking their half of ice and their circle blur which i think is so fucking good it goes down like nestle's chocolate milk all right so that's officially the next thing i'm trying because you've talked about that in almost every podcast i've had and i have yet to try it it's good you should get it i like it anyway uh so trout circle brewing they are our, are the official sponsor of one of us.net. And, uh, you know, if you're going to be drinking one, take a picture of yourself drinking one and, uh, and post it on Twitter with a at one of us.net and at circle brewing. And that can't hurt, right? Uh, also, subscribers, come on, man. Tis the season for giving, and we need the giving more than ever. We really, really do. Uh, this site is incredibly difficult to keep running. It constantly has new costs. They keep upgrading what Google expects from you right now as it is. I'm behind on shit that I need to throw three or $400 at that I just don't have. That I'm like, how do I fix my security certificates? How do I do this? Well, you have to hire someone to do it because I ain't no tech savvy guy. <laughs> Unfortunately, I've pretty much run this website like uh, uh, on my own in terms of back of house stuff and it is really 
really hard. Your money goes to not only making sure that I have enough time to do all the stuff that's already out there, but trying to make sure that the site can continue to exist by fixing stuff like that. So please think about becoming a subscriber at either the $2, $5, $10, or $25 level. You also get nice little bonus stuff inside of our forums. By doing that, uh, think about becoming a subscriber. Now let's get started with the reviews and get started with a cult classic of Italian horror, uh, one might call it Dawn of the Dead 2. <laughs> it was uh, this movie Zombie, or as it came out in Ital- Italy, Zombie 2, because it was Dawn of the Dead was released there as Zombie, and so this was released as kind of a sequel to that, like yep. at least in terms Which, of title. Don't I remember, too, that Dawn of the Dead, when it was released over there, was kind of hacked to pieces, too? And I vaguely remember that that ruined the relationship, the release that came out of there. There were a lot of problems that went on with that, but I wouldn't go so far as to say hacked to pieces. I okay. mean, the Italians liked gorier stuff than the Americans did. The American version arguably was a little tamer than oh, the Italian version. I wasn't even version thinking was. about violence. I just, I, I know that Italy of this era had a strong tendency to go, what? Copyright laws. Who cares? Let's right. do our own thing. Well, I mean, our, uh, Romero already had a relationship with Italian directors um, when they released Dawn of the Dead. The soundtrack in the Italian version is actually, if I'm not mistaken, by Goblin. I believe so as uh, well. Um, uh, which was an arrangement that was made ahead of time. And he was certainly talking to these people, dealing with these people. I don't know if for sure if there was any super hard feelings because of this film, but you know what? This is a very silly zombie <clears throat> film that nonetheless kind of does some stuff no one had ever seen before in a zombie film. And even though at the same time, it's getting way away from the whole Dawn of the Dead thing and going back to sort of the Caribbean zombie films well, of like Bela Lugosi's White Zombie and stuff like that. And it's like tying like into a that. prequel of sorts to Dawn of the Dead, too. Like, it, it's not really like most zombie films that takes place just after the fall of man where there are zombies everywhere. It's like, no, th- these are the first three or four zombies we find. Right. Uh, like, the first zombie we see in this is like in an abandoned sails- sailboat that drifts into New York Harbor. Uh, and, uh, one of them who, uh, one of the police officers who's on there immediately killed by said zombie. Of course. Um, but the boat's daughter and a journalist basically team up to try and find her father who owned the boat. Uh, what happened to find his trail, which leads her to a Caribbean island of Matul. Uh, along the way, they befriend some sort of adventurous types that they meet, guy and girl <laughs> out there. And they get to the island and they find, uh, a doctor who's been running a hospital there because everyone is getting sick and dying of something. And as well as he's researching voodoo rites, which he believes somehow these illnesses all these islanders are getting is related to voodoo, voodoo which is the part where it ties into sort of like those the, the, the zombie movies before they became the George Romero zombies. You know, the old school voodoo right. rite zombie stuff. That's one thing that's interesting here, because like the, the way they handle gore and the actual plot, it, it does feel like it's tying into that Dawn of the Dead. It is very much a prequel. Uh, the gore is... Flipping amazing. Like, I'd seen half of this movie before actually watching the movie. Just because it's some of the most famous kills and... Yes, the shark versus zombie versus it's, totally naked woman. It's really impressive, yeah, actually. It, it's actually a really cool <laughs> scene. My, when I was watching this upstairs, uh, that scene was on when my wife came in. She's brushing her teeth and just stops for a moment and goes like, what? I thought you were watching a zombie movie. I was like, no, 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 just... Just wait. Just stay in the room. And had her watch that entire sequence. You already knew what was coming. Oh, I knew it was coming. Um, but the, the one thing I want to call out, though, is it's, because it's kind of a prequel movie, it feels more like an Italian giallo type of movie than it does a zombie film. Just because it's so steeped in that Italian culture, uh, the women serve no purpose other than to get naked and scream. Yeah. Uh, the men do all the tough stuff. And, and even then, they pretty much like just get killed horribly. Yeah. yeah so, but, And then it's mixed with some of the most amazing gore. The, the other part that I wanted to call my poor wife was working while I was watching this upstairs in the bedroom. Don't ask. Uh, and it was the infamous, I'm just going to call it, uh, eyeball scene? Yeah. That, and, that eye gouging scene. Holy she, shit. She looked up and was like, what, what's happening? I don't get it. Uh, oh. Oh, God. They're doing this. Oh, God. Oh, God. That's that's a sequence that, like, it's a, you know it's going to happen, 
And yet watching the way that Lucio Fulci directs it, it just, he really builds the suspense of like that moment of like, oh shit, is this going to happen? And he lets you sit and simmer for a bit before it actually comes to be. And when it does, you're like, Jesus Christ, those are some great fucking effects, even by today's standards. Yeah, well, because you keep going, oh, he's going to cut away. Yeah. No, he just shows the entire thing. Yes. And and I, like, you can, you can tell it's, uh, it's a fake head, kinda, but it's still, like you said, one of the best fake heads I've ever seen. It convinced the shit out of me. I mean, this is not in terms of just a movie, movie like an all-time unmissable classic or anything. No. But if you are really into like the his- uh, horror movies, like if horror is your thing and especially gore, or if you're really into zombie films specifically, this is a don't miss film. I, I would also add it. If you like that kind of weird seventies Italian cinema. Mm-hmm. And, and if you happen to be someone who enjoys both, yeah, you, you have to check this out. And, and this is loaded with special features. Oh too. yeah. Well, I was going to say, uh, the scores by Fabio Frizzi, who like next is that guy next just a step down from goblin as far as best Italian movie soundtracks ever. Did so many great ones. And the soundtrack is, in fact, included in a third disc that comes with this thing, uh, as well as a uh, a booklet, 22-page booklet with an essay called We Are Going to Eat You, Zombie versus the Critics. <laughs> a, a 3D lenticular slip cover with a reversible cover with vintage poster art as well. This is Blue Underground putting this out, and this is really kind of like the high benchmark of releases they have put out in their history. Like you're like, God damn, they're not fucking around. And, uh, there's a new introduction to zombie by Guillermo de Toro. Who's always been famously a big fan of this thing, even though it's really brief. He's just like, Hey, check out this movie. It's cool. There's a, when the earth spits out the dead interview with Steven thrower, which is a brand new, uh, interview with the author Beyond Terror, the films of Lucio Fulci, who talks about the evolution of his career and and then specifically about stuff with this movie. There's a bunch of promotional materials, poster and still gallery, two audio commentaries. Uh, there is a archival program called Zombie Wasteland, where uh, a lot of people t- uh, who are involved in the industry talk about why zombie has stood the test of time. Flesh Eaters on Film, another archival one with the co-producer talking about why, how he is scared of horror films and how he con- con- contacted Fulci, who, by the way, before this point, wasn't a horror director. Thank you. I was going to call that out. That, yeah. that blew me away when I was watching that documentary. He had made, like, comedies and romance yeah. movies. And, yeah. then and westerns. And then, of, co- of course, a few westerns, because it was Italy, and you, that was the thing there. Uh, Dead Time Stories, not the movie, mind you, which I've still never seen. I've always heard it's horrible, but I'll watch it, it someday. Uh, archival interview with the co-writers, A World of the Dead, archival interview with the cinematographer and the pr- production and costume designer, Zombie Italiano, ar- archival interview with with the special makeups effects artists uh, and a notes on a headstone archival program uh, that interview, interviews uh, Fabio Frizzi, the soundtrack guy, uh, soundtrack guy, Jesus, uh, <laughs> zombie lover, which uh, archival program where Del Toro talks about the first time watching this movie for 10 minutes and how it kind of changed his, his way he looked at making horror movies. So I, I really think this is like, it's the essential release by just a huge margin of this film is decidedly the best version. And by the way, the upgrade on it looks fantastic. Oh, the it's last a gorgeous time, transfer. The last time I watched this, it looked like shit, and it was the best version that existed. Yeah, I've never seen it not look like a shitty pan and scan VHS. And now yes. we got this where it's like, God damn, this is actually kind of gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, okay, so going on to new stuff, we get The House That Never Dies, re- <laughs> Reawakening. Okay, now, to be clear... Like, full honesty here, this is a sequel yeah. to a movie called The House That Never Dies that I have never seen. I am not either. I was not on, on the table at all for me. But you know what? I like really weird Asian stuff, and I was like, I'm going to check this shit out. <laughs> I was uh, 2014 is the date The House That Never Dies came out. Uh, and it was actually based off an actual place. Uh, in in Beijing, which is like loaded with like local folk tales of being just ridiculously yeah, it's, it's like haunted, the most haunted building in the country. And that film was a mega hit in China. Like it was a huge like like we're talking like a success like The Conjuring or something. Like people loved the shit out of it. So of course it gets a sequel just a few years later with this film that takes place much like the original did in two different time periods: the past and the present with a married couple who are temporarily staying at the house uh, where uh, the husband is a cultural relic restorer who's trying to restore this 
old ass mansion. Um, and his wife, played by Joan Chen, holy shit, like from from Twin Peaks, amongst many other oh, things. Oh shit, I did not recognize yeah. her. Uh, they begin to start to have ghost experiences, finding baby skeletons, books written in blood with weird, like magical ritual stuff in it, and it flashes back and forth between that and a hundred years beforehand by two other people played by the same yes, actors yeah. who who are basically in a relationship that ends in jealousy and murder. Well, it's their previous incarnation of life. Yeah. I mean, that's a big, that's yeah, a very, a thing. yeah, it's a thing over there. <laughs> and I, I, I think like I'm putting context clues together, but I'm assuming that the people who hired the main character in this movie are the people in the first movie. Cause they kind of referenced that. Oh yeah. Five years ago we had crazy shit happen on this construction site. And I'm just, I feel like that's what the first movie. I felt was. like that too, but there's, but at the same time, you're also like, it's not going to, there's no, no point. Way. It's going to interrupt anything yeah. of you going, I don't understand what's going on in this one. You can watch this by itself. So I'm curious. Did you like this movie? I have very mixed feelings about this. Movie. So I, I, this was one of three movies that I watched upstairs in the bedroom. Cause we had family staying with us. And so my wife and I watched it together right before we went to bed. And we made it through the first, like, 15 minutes of this movie, and I think we had a question every five seconds, like, wait a minute, why don't they do this, or why aren't they showing us the whole house? It's because there is no whole house, it's all CG. Um, yeah. And so, like, we hit a point where the wife walked through the house, like, for 10 minutes without saying a word, instead of just saying, hey, honey, where are you? And we kind of shifted into hate-watching this. Okay. And just making fun of it while watching it. And, and, and once you hit that point, that's you're in for the ride. Yeah. Like, that was the only way I could really find enjoyment of this movie. It is super cheesy. They use every shitty technique I've ever seen, like avid farts. They do pop zooms for no reason. They have flashbacks. I think there's even a flashback within a flashback, maybe. Yeah, I think there is, too. Yeah, and, like, the, the CG is not quite on the level of Snapchat filters, <laughs> but it's pretty close. It's, it's not. And good. it's a CG-heavy movie. Very and, heavy. And even then, there is a point towards the end of the movie where one of the characters confronts another for something that their past life did. And how dare you do this to me in our past life? That is an actual fucking line in this movie. And I gave up at that point. That's the thing. Like, when I'm watching this, I'm going, there is definitely like one of those cultural divide things because reincarnation is a much more, like, it's just a, that is just yeah, how it is. It's so, part of their uh, belief structure. Uh, at, least for, at least for a large portion of China, certainly not everyone, but that's a big thing. And it's one of those things that you grow up with and like, and you believe in, and we don't necessarily feel that way here. That's not the way we think about things. And for them, they're tying their ghost story into a sort of reincarnation thing. It is, well, let me just say is far from the first time I've seen this. Yeah. Like it's, it's a running thread we're going to see in these. And I, I kind of get why to some extent this would have been popular over there, but it's, this doesn't sell here. Like I, I'm hoping that the first was just a significantly better movie. And this is just a really terrible sequel because even when you split that cultural divide, yeah, this, is still a super cheesy, super predictable. You can tell every single turn this movie is going to take at least 15 to 20 minutes before it takes it. Like it, this movie did nothing for me other than give me something to make fun of with my wife. Well, talking about uh, cheesy, let's talk about our next film, which is an American horror movie called the nun. Um, <laughs> now it certainly has a better quality of CG effects than, yes, does. than that does by a significant margin. This is the latest film in the uh, conjuring verse. Is it the conjuring verse or the conjure verse? Con you know, I feel like they actually have a, yeah, it's just called the Conjuring Universe is what they call it. No, it needs to be Sometimes people find a real, a weird name. Like, it's like, oh, the number of the building from the first movie or something. And they call it you that. Mean like, you know? what's, what's the Venom one? It's like the the villains of Spider-Man universe. Yeah, but that's just sounding. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but this is a spinoff of The Conjuring 2 where we first see, like, this character being brought into the story. And, indeed, it integrates, of course, towards the, in the beginning and the end, kind of a framing device, the characters, the, you know, the lead investigators and the conjuring and how they were, how they got kind of sucked up into this nun thing, because yeah. this is a period piece ultimately outside of those things, which also technically are period pieces, I guess, uh, just a much later period. 
uh, <laughs> that uh, is in 1950s Romania with some Roman Catholic nuns who are attacked by a ghostly force. Uh, and uh, the surviving nun gets out, but just in time to die, where Frenchie, who is the unsung hero of the film, <laughs> discovers her body, and the Vatican finds out about it, and they send in um, uh, Father Burke, played by Damien Bashir, and Thaisa Farmiga, his sister Irene, to uh, assist him, who is a novitiate. I have no idea why they would send... Well, yeah, them, like... So, I saw this in theaters, sense. and when I was watching this again, I was watching for that, because I'm also curious. It seems like there should be a reason why it's her. Yeah. But they undo it five minutes into their journey, when they're just like, yeah, I don't know why. Anyway, the short form is they get in there, there's ghosts and shit, and there's a demon nun running around that looks like Marilyn Manson, and everybody's scared, and they make them see things that aren't really there, and... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, we you can listen to the full review on Highly Suspect Reviews. You can put it in the search bar. It should pop right up on the site. Um, I don't want to go too long about this because we have discussed this at length. Yeah. But I will say, I, I people were hating on this, despite the fact this made a fucking shit ton of money this year. There will be a nun, too. I hate to tell you, folks. You know, like, I'm kind of okay with that. Like, there's a lot I like in this movie, a lot more than when I originally saw it, mm-hmm. but... The second act is still filled with scene after scene of the dumbest character decisions I've ever seen in a movie. And, like, there's a point halfway where, for all intents and purposes, the movie should be over. Yeah. And then they just stay. This is one of those... And, like, but once you get past that, the effects are good, the creatures are good. This is Listen a, to our it, It's a haunted ride movie. It really yeah. is. Much like the Insidious films are, are meant to be, except to, with less quality. Yeah. At least compared to the first one, anyway. Um, it's... it they, they... To some degree, and I, I definitely say The Conjuring stands all on its own, and even Conjuring 2, which isn't as good, but still, that they're really trying to make a more classy horror film. These are... Like totally get in the little car that's on a tr- on a rail, go through, and things pop out at you. And this is the movie equivalent of that. But honestly, there's so many shitty thing movie horror movies that come out constantly that are just doing the same thing that are so really bad that to see someone do this that's just jump scares and CG and it's actually not bad for that. I'm like. I got to give you points at least for that. For people who like this sort of thing, this is much better than the bulk of the garbage that comes out. I in agree. This stuff. In fact, I, I see, and this is the last thing I'll say about this. I'm actually would be excited to see none too, because this feels like it could be like Ouija where the first one was an interesting idea that kind of got mangled a bit or just, it didn't quite work. It had about a bunch of problems. And the second one, I can see them coming in and having a far better second act and then turning out a really good film. Yeah. He, she comes in and she possesses Marilyn Manson to turn there him into go. a rock star to lead kids to evil. I'm sorry. It writes itself. I would watch the shit out of that. <laughs> uh, there's not a lot of extra features here. It's really just kind of featurettes, little EPK things that are, you know, stuff that was being played on the internet for people to get excited about the movie. There is about 12 minutes of deleted scenes. The Conjuring chronology is the only thing I thought was interesting in here because it it tries to, like, it can be a little confusing at this point, um, and it sets up where this takes place in the history of everything that's gone on uh, in a linear sense, which is kind of like, okay, cool. That was kind of a neat thing to do. I'm glad they had that there. It's only, like, less than four minutes, but, you know, hey, some people it really is need what it. it is. Uh, next up, we have going to the have to talk about this year. I've got two to talk about this year, one on this one and the one on my next show, Christmas Horror Films. We've got All the Creatures Were Stirring. And this is an odd one. Yeah, it is. Because even though this this anthology, Christmas Horror Film, is super low budget, it's not terribly well filmed, it has a mixed bag of acting. There are some genuinely good people in this, but there's some genuinely bad ones as well. It's so goddamn odd. Like, these type of things I always expect to be just like, yeah, 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 we've seen this all before. And almost every single one of these did something I was like, I haven't really seen that you before. Know, like, <laughs> it had a framing device that actually paid off to me better than any of these horror framing devices I've seen. Yeah, it was a weird, like, it, unsettling little framing it device. It was a great, great payoff at the end. Um, I have to admit, I really didn't like the very first short. And in fact, 
I didn't even, I, I can't believe I didn't realize this, but I didn't even realize it was actually an anthology horror movie <laughs> at first. How long did it take you to figure that out? Uh, like two minutes into the second sequence. <laughs> okay. Because I was wow. looking down in the transition and just looked up and was like, who the fuck is this guy? Why am I following him now? Well, so the, fr- the framing device is this awkward couple on kind of like a, like sort like, of date. A, a not date. Yeah. yeah. Like, I put yeah. that in quotes. Yeah. The guy'd like to think it's a date. Clearly the girl's not so sure. They go to like this sort of local low budget art, uh, theater, not movie theater, like, like theater theater to see this crew do these sort of like mimed series of vignettes that they have no idea what it is going to be going on. They're all named after phrases from the night before Christmas. And it's titled all the creatures were stirring. Yeah. And I like that. Like at the, like at the beginning of each one, someone comes out and shows the title, like Frau yeah. title comes out and gives the title With, without saying a single word. Yeah. They just walk out like, like a wrestling thing, show the card and then walk off stage. And then at the end, you always see kind of like the actors that are doing it, like what they were doing at the, what, with what happened yeah. at the end of the sequence we saw. Cause we don't watch them do it. It goes to a, this is what they're representing. Thank God. Uh, the first story is the stockings were hung, which is an office holiday party where somebody in the office has has loaded the presents with uh, violent, horrible things. Yep. It's basically, it's a white elephant gift, the movie. Yeah. I actually really enjoyed it. I was surprised <sighs> you did not. I thought I, it was I, interesting. I liked the concept of it, but it might just be because I've worked in a shitty corporate job. It was just, it was too brutal and real for me. It was Fair just like, oh, I've been in an environment where someone would do that. <laughs> Well, we have Dash Away Alls, the second one, which actually is one I was like, yeah. wow, I have no idea where this is going as it's going. And it was very Black Mirror with this guy who's like just coming out of a shopping mall uh, at Christmas, put his his, uh, his presents in the car, and then locked himself out of the fucking car, meets these two girls in a van, asks them for help, and things gradually start to get pretty fucking yeah. weird. This was my favorite piece. I, this was when I went from, what is this, to... I actually kind of am genuinely enjoying myself. I, I really liked it. It wasn't my favorite, but I re- it was my second favorite. Oh, probably. shit. I think I know what your favorite is. And then we have also The House, which is just Christmas Carol and actually doesn't work at all. God so, damn it. Yeah. I, I did know not, what your favorite is. I did not care for that one whatsoever. <laughs> uh, and then Arose <laughs> Such a Clatter, which was is fun, but it's kind of dumb, which is basically a guy hits one of Santa's reindeer on the with his car and Rudolph goes on a killing spree. Was it Rudolph? It's supposed to be Rudolph because the red glow That's whenever right. he comes in. Okay. Yeah. No, it was Dasher who gets killed. Yeah. And then finally, we got my favorite, In a Twinkling, which is the very Twilight Zone episode of this, where a guy is is pretty much cursed to be in a Twilight Zone episode, like old school black and white photography, lots of really weird fucking stuff going on, like lots of, this is the artiest of all of these, and I found it like goofy fun, and it's yeah. got a sort of 60s Rod Serling-esque, Rod Serling-esque mentality about it, but only, but in a meta way. I'll agree. I really did like that one. I was worried that your favorite one was going to be the Rudolph one. No. Which just drove me up the wall. Did it? Well, it was just, it, it went so hard into the grindhouse aesthetic that it, it kind of broke it for me. But I enjoyed almost all of the others. I was kind of surprised. Like, the horror sites were all mixed on, because I looked at a couple different reviews, and either they were like, this is really inventive. It's not like the best thing you're ever going to see, but damn, it's actually worth a look to fuck this movie, fuck well, it in the ass. I think it's because it's really low budget, and it's really amateur filmmaking. Like, yeah. guys who clearly, clearly this is one of their first movies, but... Like you said, it's inventive. There's a lot of thought put into it. And fuck, man, the, I loved the stinger at the end. It, it yeah. almost, it almost makes the framing device one of my favorite stories. They, they put so much work into trying to make this things like you haven't seen before and, and just have a lot of fun with it that it almost doesn't matter at a certain point that it is as super low budget. Exactly. As it is. Yeah. Uh, it, you respect it for what they managed to do. And there is a commentary track here, which, uh, featuring the writer, directors, uh, producer and, uh, one of the actors. Which I hear is fun. I did not have time to listen I, to. I it, didn't have time to either. That that one and Zombie were ones that I wish I had had time to check them out. Exactly. Well, one that came out without any extra features whatsoever <laughs> is Happy Birthday to Me. <laughs> uh, this is a 1981 Canadian slasher film that was released initially to piss poor ratings, but has since grown a massive cult following behind it. And upon, and I had never actually seen this. I thought I had, I was thinking of a different movie. So I've heard of this, but it's always in conjunction with that era of slasher movies 
where every holiday had its own slasher, and this yeah. was the... Can you fucking believe it? They even made a happy birthday slasher. Not the only one, to be <laughs> fair. Uh, and it was also kind of... People were paying attention because of Mer- Melissa Sue Anderson plays the lead role in here, who is... Uh, believe it or not, at Once Upon a Time, the show Little House on a Prairie was one of the most popular TV shows in the world. Everyone fucking got together, and my family got together and watched Little House on the Prairie. <laughs> I was never really a fan myself, but it was one of the things you do. Uh, it was it was a thing, and she played one of the daughters on there. So watching her get a little more grown up and playing like like a, a slasher queen, you know, scream queen. You're like everyone's like, what's up with that? Plus Glenn Ford, who was a really respected actor, yeah. is in this thing, and people were like, what is what is this movie? And a very like uh, a poster that you're like, what is going on? there. The original art for, for this where the guy is like screaming and there's like a shish kebab of, with like well, meat and everything on about to go in his mouth. I remember going that in the video store looking at that going, fuck that. I did you recognize that, that guy? His name was like Matt Fire or Matt Free. He's one of those that guys who's been in fucking everything. Okay. I did not know that. Um, the director, J. Lee Thompson directed Cape Fear, The Guns of Navarone. You're like, oh, Jesus Christ. So I was like, it's what I can't believe I had never actually seen this. Now this is from a new set of releases that are coming out that have like uh, that look like there's a videotape pulling out of its case, yeah. so it's got a super retro look to it. So it's got this great slip cover. It's a really cool design looking thing, and even the upgrade of the the actual quality of the movie was not bad at all. It looks pretty good, but there's no bonus features of any kind. Okay, so getting that out of the way. So if you already own this or whatever then there's no reason for you to think twice about this again, because this is probably not as good as whatever previous version existed. In Unless terms of you that. just have, like, a super shitty quality version. I don't know what's out there. All right, so uh, Melissa Sue Anderson is uh, the pretty and popular high school senior at a, at a private school that literally has a top ten. So th- this is a school that encourages... Somehow they rank the most popular students and yeah. let them have a private club with scarves and everything like that match. And like they're that's horrible. Right? I mean, they're all Slytherin. So it's all a bunch of douchebags that are the most popular students, as you might imagine, except for her because she's a sweet girl. She's so nice, isn't she? They meet up at a regular at a par a bar regularly, uh, and then of course. It ends up with, like, somebody is slowly, one at a time, like, murdering these kids. Not terribly gorily, but inventively. Yeah. So, uh, like, where you're like, oh, well, that's, like, it's, it's well shot. All the kills are well shot. They just they just turn away from the gore. Oh, the and they're, they're inventive, but they're also steeped in a lot of incredibly stupid activity. Like, this is an 80s slasher through and through. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm better actually, shot than a lot of them. Even, I would argue, better acted than a lot of them. I'm actually but. really grateful I, I watched this today. Uh, and I had to watch it with my mom and with my wife. Because I was like, I have a two-hour window. I'm watching this movie. And I'm sorry you guys are here. So I ended up just like having a wonderful time watching it with my mom and her. Just making fun of this movie the whole way through. But enjoying the shit out of it. Okay. Like... It has every single stereotype except for nudity that every 80s slasher does. You're right. The teens are complete assholes. Uh, you get a kill every 15 or so minutes. Yeah. It's not like one of those. It's, it's not on the clock. This is not a gore hounds horror film. But, it's, a, it's a weird horror movie. Yeah, and, like what, fan. What makes it special is where it goes. Yeah. That's, so like, like they, they do the red herring thing where like every scene is there's a new red herring on who the killer might be. And then they, they reveal who the killer is at about an hour. And this is an hour and 15 minute movie. And then like 15 minutes later, there's a twist. And then 10 minutes after that, it's, well, maybe you thought you knew who the killer was, but you don't really. I do this. And then there are, I counted four twists in the last 10 minutes of the movie. It's so insane. <laughs> like, like you're just like <laughs> laughing so hard. You can't stand it. How ridiculous and improbable this one twist ever. after it, another gets it, at the end, it feels like, like that movie that inspired people who made parodies to start making jokes about it. Yeah. Like it's like, this is one step before parody. Like as far as you can go without just being a complete joke, but it's, <laughs> 
I, there's no question that it ends up being a lot of fun. I wish it was a little shorter because this takes its time to get to yeah. what it needs to do. Once again, it doesn't hurt the fact that like it's well shot and these actors aren't as bad as a lot of the actors are in these t- these period well, films. And, but- and, and they add a lot of time building up reasons for the main character who is kind of going through some mental issues in the movie. Yeah. Uh, like she clearly has some trauma. Well, she, yeah, she had been in an accident with her mother where her mother died and by her own fault, because her mother was a crazy alcoholic, crazy psycho. Uh, And she almost died. She was like, was considered she was going to be brain dead, but they managed to bring her back. Yeah. So, and you're right off the bat. Like, "Mm -hmm." yeah, yeah. It's super (laughs) obvious right here and stuff, but none of that matters in the movie. Ultimately, Ultimately. Well, it's so like, weird that the the fight the the big last twist, and maybe next to last twist, is you're like, wait, what? Yeah. Where the fuck did that come from? Yeah. No. <laughs> I spent like five minutes going, to, like, wait, how does that reframe everything I've seen before? Yeah. And then the next twist happens, and you're like, that makes marginally more sense, but that still makes no sense. Feels like they would have at least mentioned something. At some point of the film that made that a plausible yeah, right? thing to have happened. Just something, a reference. I, I do kind of recommend this. I mean, once again, this is definitely for people who are more fans of the slasher genre, who are not afraid to watch one that is just totally fucking absurd. You know, th- this is to watch in exactly the situation I was in. Now, granted, not with your mom and your wife necessarily, but with a group of people who enjoy watching silly movies, get some beer. This is that kind of a movie. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It really is. All right, so I'm going to talk real briefly because we, I did do a full review of this uh, television miniseries, Sharp Objects, on a previous uh, episode when they released the digital version of this. I just wanted to say that this thing is really one of my favorite uh, uh, television things this year. It is now available on Blu-ray as well as digital. It's based on Gillian Flynn's uh, novel, which was her first novel of the of the same name. Gillian Flynn, of course, who did uh, uh, Gone Girl, who wrote Gone Girl. And it's directed by Jean-Marc Vallée, uh, starring Amy Adams as a, a reporter that returns to her hometown reluctantly to cover the murder of two teenage girls. And she has real issues with her, with a lot of people in the town who are not happy about now this big city girl coming in all cynical, Patricia Clarkson playing her sort of like Southern debutante mother. I vaguely remember ads of this when it was about to come out. I'm glad that this is starting to be really that good. I I just love this. It's not a, it's a pot boiler, which is to say this is not going to be frantically moving from one thing to the next. It's uh, Amy Adams plays a person who's got her own problems with alcohol. I mean, it, to say that she wakes up in the morning and downs a whole bottle of vodka first thing. Jesus. Yeah, she's, she's got serious Jesus. problems. Uh, and <clears throat> it's a fascinating psychological drama and with some of the best performances of the year. But anyway, I've talked about this at length else, elsewise. I just, once again, really recommending this for people uh, who, who like this sort of thing. There's only one bonus feature which is five minutes called Creating the Creating Wind Gap, which is just a look at creating the small town that's in this thing. I was kind of sad. I would have loved to have seen interviews with the actors and all sorts of things. I I thought this was this is one of those things I just couldn't stop watching. And so it, limited series, so it's yeah. done. It was yeah, it's done. done. They're not making a seat. Okay, cool. Yeah. I'll all check right. it out. So next up, we have going over to the Far East with J- to Japan for Outrage Coda or Outrage 3, if you will. Now, Aaron, you told me you've not watched Outrage 1 or 2. I have not. I've always wanted to. They're on my watch list, but I've never been managed to make the time. I This one, the third and decidedly final yeah. one. Holy shit, decidedly. Uh, written and, uh, or sorry, directed and starring Takeshi Kitano, a.k.a. Beat Takeshi, who's like a legend in Japan. I always call him kind of the Clint Eastwood of Japan. You know, I've, I've been enjoying his movies for about 15, maybe 20 years now. Yeah, he's great. Like, I, I even remember... W- how weird it is to look back at Takeshi's castle and watch the old, um, like pre Ninja warrior goofball stuff he did. Oh yeah. No, he's been done all sorts of stuff, but he's definitely, I think closest associated with the Yakuza genre. He, he likes to do, he likes gangster movies above all others. And he generally makes slow, very methodically paced, but extremely violent when they get violent movies. And this is the, uh, t- all right. So this, just came out this uh, last year. Um, uh, 
uh, Beyond Outrage came out in 2012. Outrage started in 2010. And definitely, no question, Outrage is the best of the three. I'm not going to deny that. But I still think this was pretty solid. But now I'm going to let Aaron describe the story of this one while I get a beer. (laughs) So basically, the movie begins with Beat Takeshi, because that's how I always know him in all of his movies. Uh, he's essentially running a brothel in Korea, and a Yakuza boss uh, doesn't quite pull it unforgiven, but still kind of beats up a couple of his girls because they laughed at his small penis, which is, I love that detail. And so, in trying to problem solve this, basically, Takeshi is like, look, look I'm not going to fuck with you, but y- you you hit my women, you need to pay me money. Uh, and this boss being a dumb shit, uh, instead kills one of his men and jerks off back to Japan. And Is that a thing people say? <laughs> it's, it's, it's what I did. Okay, I was, fair enough. So I was, it, I was it, unclear. I was like, wait, did I miss a scene? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he's kind of a hoary guy. Like, he gets a lot of hookers. He's into meth fair and enough, prostitution. It made sense. Um, but So what follows is kind of the outfall or the, the after effects of that event. Um, but that's where the movie gets kind of interesting, because going into this, I knew that was the plot. And I was expecting this to be a death sentence or a, a, a slower, more methodical Punisher-type movie. Well, you keep where, waiting for Which is this revenge film, but it's not that. Because no. once that happens, it splits off from Katano and really spends most of the movie focusing on the Yakuza members in, the, in Tokyo. And what's going on is, I'm, I'm guessing based on previous events, but they're, the chairman of the organization is somebody who the some of the older guard don't really have faith in. They think he's a pansy businessman. And they are starting to maneuver to remove him from power, and he is also maneuvering to remove them from power, so that basically everyone's trying to get as much power as they can, and this death of a random gangster in Korea kind of is the catalyst that everyone latches on to, to... Make their move. There's another Yakuza clan that's kind of historically been allied with Takashi uh, Katano's, like, who now is sort of not directly associated with the clan. He's no. kind of like his well, own, doing his own thing in Korea. So, a 70-year-old guy who's yeah. retired, basically. But the fact is he's such so famous for being a bloodthirsty badass that the moment it becomes clear, this, this dumbass... Who, who considered himself an up-and-comer did this. They're like, you did what? Yeah. <laughs> it, it's it reminds John me of the Wick John Wick. Yeah. Yeah. They're just like, <laughs> like, drop everything. We need to go there immediately and make this right. Yeah. And then they fuck it up even more and then even more. And eventually, in kind of the third act, we get some of that Kitano coming up and just committing revenge and oh, dude, bloody there's murder a on everyone. Where, like, you expect it's going to be kind of more one, of it, one at a time, but this whole thing kind of kicks off with him setting up with a bunch of dudes with machine guns into a hall where the entire Yakuza clan is, is and just massacring all of them with fully automatic <laughs> weapons. And you're like, Jesus Christ! Well, the guy who told him about the meeting is just screaming into a mic going, stop! What are you doing? No! <laughs> it's like, you should have known what you were messing with, buddy. But yeah, like... It, it, this is very much a Katana movie. Uh, it, it's it's a very calm, quiet film with bouts of extremely violent violence. Uh, it has possibly one of the bleakest endings I've seen in film this year. Yeah. But I really enjoy this kind of gangster movie. I, I like Katano's bland, uh, not bland, <laughs> blend of calm with that staccato Blood and gore. He's a wonderful filmmaker who knows how to get really solid performances out of actors. Uh, even his some of his slower films, like Hana B, is one I really recommend. Fireworks. Wonderful fireworks is really great. But these are not like you don't. This ain't gonna be Kill Bill, people. No, it, it's it, it, they're dramas. It's just they're dramas, dramas that about Yakuza members that occasionally get insanely violent. Yeah. <laughs> you know, which is an odd mix. We don't do well, those type of films well, here I, as much. What it is, it's not necessarily that they go over the top with the gore. It's just 
these are violent stories, and when they get violent, it's it's incredibly cold and brutal. The, there's a sequence. Oh yeah, sorry. One of the things I want to comment on: he shoots everything in a wide too. Mm-hmm. He doesn't do a quick shot the way a lot of American filmmakers do. There is an attack, an assassination attempt that literally the setup, execution, and aftermath is a static wide shot of of a car going into a garage, and you watch this happen, and you don't really understand what happened. Because it went from quiet to loud just that quick. Right. It's only after the intervening few minutes you start to pick the pieces together of what occurred. And that's how he shoots his violence. It's always like just calm, calm. With a no fuck, they're shooting. Indeed. And I do recommend seeing Outrage, especially the first one in the series, which is by far the best. But it still is like all three of these are pretty good. I'm going to go check out Outrage and Beyond Outrage. This is now that I've seen it, I, I really feel like I need to watch the the eggs that hatched into the story start to get like and then once again like you, like you said fireworks is great Hana B is great he's in a lot of great movies of he course he did a great Zatoichi Zatoichi well he didn't direct Battle Royale no. that was Kenji Fukusaki no, 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 but he's great in he it. is amazing but, in it. I, I'll, I, whether or not he directed stuff I'm like I just love to see him. actually that's true he's good in everything I've seen him in yeah he's pretty good all right so our next film uh, comes way back over to America with Orson Welles with the film that well where he fucked himself, quite frankly, on uh, 1942's The Magnificent Ambersons. I mean, Orson Welles shouted louder than anyone, don't watch this movie, it's not my movie, RKO totally butchered it, but dude, that's on you, because he left on vacation. He literally was like, I gotta go do some shit for six months overseas, which was basically hang out and drink and party, and left the print of the studio, and they're like, that's, you can't do that. And they were like, alright dude, fuck you. We're gonna edit this how we think it should be. And he came back all raving and ranting and raving, and they're like, it's too fucking late, well, man. that's because Orson Welles is Orson Welles. Like, yeah. The dude is, he's inarguably important, and he's made some amazing film, amazing contributions to the language of cinema. Yeah. He's still a prick. Yeah, no, there's no question he was a prick. Like many people who were geniuses throughout history, I mean, I'm sure there's some nice geniuses out there, but they're few and far between. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying. This is uh, from adapted from a Pulitzer Prize winning 1918 novel uh, by Booth Tarkington. It was not actually the first time it was adapted either, believe it or not. Really? Yeah. Uh, But it was kind of famous for, like, this film didn't get re-released for a really long time because, like, a lot of people were actively fighting against it being seen. Like, oh, it's an abortion. You know, it's so not. And I've read so many different reviews of this over the years where they describe, like, all those moments that you can tell is a Wells moment and then you can tell exactly when it's not a Wells moment yeah. because the studio has no idea how to take what he was doing with his cinematography, what he was building towards, and ev- and make it come to its natural conclusion. Instead, they'll fade away to something else that is makes no sense juxtaposed with the previous sequence. Yeah. And there's certainly that. When you watch this, you're like, there's a lot of gorgeous shots in this thing, but ultimately it's really jumbled and like has a lot of like, so why did you tell us this story? And it has a lot of odd narration where like there's narration not to describe the plot, but how the genteel society acted at that particular moment or fashion. And it, yeah. Like the, why did you tell this story? Because the protagonist is without a doubt, the most vile person out of any movie I watched. I actually was commenting somehow in a world with Deadpool and all the other heroes. <laughs> this is the worst protagonist I've ever fucking seen in a movie. He is just an evil son of a bitch. Not like, not even in a mustache twirler. He's, he's like just a frat boy evil. He's for just the a time. terrible prick. Yeah. Like just terrible. And, <laughs> I kept going, why are we watching this? And with the way they ended up cutting the movie, which, oh my God, you can very much tell, especially at the end of the movie when they switch from this was Wells' cut to their cut. But, like, why? Like, what's the purpose? It it seems like the only purpose that Wells may have been going for, if we can glean anything from what remained of this, is that, we're watching someone who was kind of a jerk ultimately end up with a shitty life. Yeah, but, but like, why do I want to watch that story? And even then, they like they totally changed the ending and filmed oh, yeah. a new ending for it to make it like make people feel better about it. And it was yeah, like, no, this, you ruined the, the entire seconds. point of this. 
like Citizen Kane is about an irredeemable prick who is nonetheless kind of a genius, uh, who himself, it's supposed, it's Orson Welles being self-aware and, uh, who, who goes through his life and dies tragically alone. And the whole movie is this brilliant dissertation on like, so was it all worth it after that? And it's, it's a fantastic movie. This at the end, I'm just kind of shrugging going. And so why did we yeah. hear that whole well, story? Well, tell us the story. Well, so if <laughs> not to put you on the spot, but no, that's okay. Spotlight, it's, please. Like trying to put this into words. So like the first 20 minutes of the movie, there is no story. It's just a narrator describing the society of the time and the fashion and what people lived like. And they eventually kind of latch on to this family of wealthy, uh, socialites, uh, the Ambersons and a odd jilted romance that happens when a guy is trying to charm mother Ambro Amberson and accidentally trips and falls. By the way, and Joseph Cotton. There you go, Joseph Cotton. So because he trips and falls, she's like, no, fuck you. I'm marrying this other guy. And does indeed marry him and has a kid who is a kid that the entire town despises because he's a little shit. Yeah, right entitled. from the beginning. And does nothing but insult people and fight and run people off roads with a carriage. And, at, like, that's kind of all he is. That's his entire character so, arc almost. But then, like, he gets a crush on the girl who is the daughter of who Joseph Cotton and ended up marrying after he didn't get the woman he wanted to be with. Uh, uh, Tim Holt is, uh, is the actor who played yeah. George, the, the asshole George Amberson. Uh, he falls in love with her and it makes him feel bad. Cause he's like, at the same time, he knows that that dude's moving in on his mom, who's but, now a widow. And he's like, no dude, I, this is weird. And the only times he tries to put any effort into being a human being at all is kind of to impress her on some level. Well, and what's cool about that though, is that, in a rare move in a movie of this era, she can see through his shit from second one and is almost putting him on the entire movie. And yeah, as the movie goes on, his father passes away and his mother is left single again. And she starts to redevelop a romance with the father of his love interest, who is, you know, the guy that she's always been in love with from the very beginning, because she spurned him for tripping and falling. I, I couldn't get past that. Yeah. Um, and you, we basically just watch their relationship start to develop and his, utter vitriol at this man and how dare anyone touch or love my mother besides my dead father that you just watch it kind of expand out and consume everyone like, in his family. Try to have some, and like, you try to have some, you're like, am I missing something that I should be understanding him on some level or have sympathy for him on some level? And I'm, I missed it. Yeah, you know, no, no, I, I never did. Famously, Wes Anderson had said the Royal Tenenbaums was sort of like deeply influenced by this movie. And I mean, you see that with Ben Stiller, the way he is deeply resentful of his own father, as opposed to the guy moving in on there. But it's the very same thing, except that you totally understand why well, Ben so Stiller the feels is, the way he actually, does. That, that makes me appreciate the Royal Tenenbaums a bit more because you can really see the connection. The difference is that Wes Anderson is interested in in a redemptive tale. He's wanting these people to grow. Whereas this cut that has been made is just watching cruelty. And like, I'm kind of basically everyone's lives kind of falls apart. I'm kind of baffled that this thing is still thought of as positively as it is. Cause I genuinely, genuinely really kind of disliked this. Yeah. It was like, what am I supposed to like about this other than some of the cinematography? Oh, like, and it is shot amazingly well. It is a yeah. gorgeous movie. It just time edited day. awkwardly. Yeah. Uh, all right. So this is Criterion, which means you get, and this has been a film that people have been trying to get Criterion to put out a super great edition of for a while uh, because it's, because it's Orson Welles. I mean, for fuck's sakes, they put out F for fake, you know, they're going to put out this too. Uh, F for fake is decidedly not as good as the Magnificent Ambersons. F for fake is one of the very few movies that I could not watch of Orson Welles. I stopped it 10 minutes. It's really tough. Uh, it's the Star Wars Christmas special of Orson Welles yeah. movies. Anyway, there is a booklet, of course, that comes into this thing, including a unfinished 1982 memoir excerpts by Orson Welles himself. 
there is a new video interview with actor and author Simon Callow, who talks about the original novel, the history of the adaptations of the novel, uh, how where it came into Orson Welles' body of work and the impact that it ended up, how it really, because of all the shit went down, how it changed his career and life. There's The Cinematographers, a brand new video essay with an Orson Welles scholar examining uh, the ways that this film, the style from it and the thing themes from it have continued to appear. Orson Welles and, and Dick Cavett are obviously an archival episode of the Dick Cavett show. Orson Welles talks about uh, a bunch of stuff that lots of which just isn't true about his life. <laughs> but that was Orson Welles. He was a storyteller that didn't always feel like uh, the truth was the best story. Uh, Joseph McBride, in a new video interview, author of Whatever Happened to Orson Welles, just discusses the the studio's really bad decision to butcher this and his relationship with Hollywood after that. There's the score where a Bernard Bernard Herman scholar, of course, this is uh, the original score was going to be by Bernard Herman, not the one we actually get here, by the way. Who composed a score that was not used? <laughs> he talks about that. Uh, Pampered Youth, which is uh, about, it was basically just the two real segment from the first adaptation from 1925 of the film under the title uh, Two for One. Uh, there's Peter Bogdanovich interviews, uh, vintage interviews with the director who's, uh, he himself as a writer director has always made it clear his whole life like like Orson Welles is like he's my everything I, I worship him I love him he's he's anything that even vaguely involves Orson Welles Peter, Peter Bogdanovich is going to be on it uh, there's the uh, this is not the first time Orson Welles had adapted this, actually. The Mercury Theater on CBS Radio broadcast a radio adaptation, uh, of his, uh, of this and his not, of, uh, of the same writer's 17. Both are presented here. The radio adaptations of 17 and of the Magnificent Ambersons. You know, I, I have to say, I've hit a point where I feel like Orson Welles was, made a lot more interesting stuff for radio than he did for movies, I, actually. I mean, I like, don't... I, I, I can't argue that he made important films. I mean, come on, Citizen but, Kane and Touch of Evil alone yeah, are so great. They're thoroughly great movies, but when you get beyond that, they're okay. All right. I, mean, I get why they're special, but yeah, that's no, about I, it. I hear you. He is a, he's just a fascinating figure. Yeah. And it's A lot of his stuff has to be taken in understanding the context of the time and what was going on and why the stuff he was doing was kind of like gobsmacking at the time. People were like, nobody had ever seen or done the things he was doing before. Uh, anyway, there are two commentary tracks on it as well. Our last film, and I'm pretty sure our pick of the week on yeah. both hands, is Blind Spotting. Holy shit, you guys. I've been trying to tell you guys since March how fucking fantastic this movie is. And it... I. I Oh, I, my God. I watched it again, and I was like, well, at least this time it probably, because I'll be ready for it, it won't emotionally devastate me as much in that last scene. I was a fucking, I was, uh, like, I'm a guy who, like, I, 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 I moisten, the eyes moisten, oh, I, but I don't openly cry. The, the last David Diggs, like, like uh, freeform raps scene in this movie, which has been much discussed, I just openly weeping during it. Well, so it's so it, powerful. <laughs> I feel the need to comment, this is actually a comedy, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, it is. <laughs> so, well, it's a dramedy. So I, like, I was saying, it's. I keep saying, it's it's Friday crossed with do the right thing. Yeah. I, I've been kind of describing it to people, because I've been evangelizing this movie since I saw it last week. Yeah, it's uh, astonishing. He, essentially, and I'm going to mispronounce his name, is it David Diggs? David Diggs, who's, yes. who, who, got, who? who got really well known by being in Hamilton. He was in Hamilton, and I I know him as the goofy cousin in Blackish, so um, it's really weird for me to watch him in a dramatic role. I always hear that show is great. It's a great it. show. Um, but uh, so basically, a year prior, he does something super stupid, gets put in jail for six months, and is on parole for a year. And the entire movie takes place in the last three days of his parole, as he's basically trying not to go to jail. Uh, and. Uh, Given that context, the first real scene in the movie is him and his buddies at a burger joint reopening where his friend buys an illegal handgun. Right. And so, like, that's the world he's in. He's in, 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 like, in, in he's the in ghetto like a, part of Oakland, California. He's in a lifted up four feet off the ground, <laughs> hydraulic, like, like <laughs> car with block light interiors. And the dude is just huffing on pot in there. And, like, yep. everything, every second, he's like, you guys got to be fucking kidding me. Yeah. Let me out of the car. I do not want to. 
go to jail. Do not buy the gun. I am not holding the gun. Uh, his friend is played by Raphael Casal, who is, was apparently kind of an acclaimed poet. And then he and Davi Diggs quite some time ago discovered each other, kind of found this instant bond, and have been working on projects ever since. Like, they've yeah. been putting this movie together for, like, I think I've read, like, over a decade They've been well, working on this film, and so like, I, I, I backed away from the plot. I don't want to get away too much. They, they wrote, so, they wrote, they wrote this film. They did not direct it. It was directed yeah. by Carlos Lopez Estrada. So, I didn't know they wrote it. That makes me like him even more now. Yeah, but so yeah, it's, it's the last three days of his parole, and at the end of the first day, he witnesses a police shooting of an unarmed black man by Ethan Embry. I did not know that. Yeah, but uh, so he sees that and is basically told to go on with his day. And he goes back to the halfway house he's in. And the movie is kind of about how that affects him. Because he was out technically after his time for parole, which that's the one thing that drove me crazy about this movie is he's always at, he's always home late. Motherfucker, if I was on my last few days of parole and my had to be home by 11, I would be home by 7 p.m. every damn day of the week. Um, but, but that's so, you. You've as, always as, been a good guy. As we watch kind of the pressure of this start to tear him apart. And he, he has a, he's in love with his ex-girlfriend who he ruined the relationship with the event that happened in the past. He is actively trying to better himself. He's working out every day. He's trying he, really he's hard. trying to like eat and drink good, healthy food is trying to better himself from a psychological level. Like, like, He's trying to be a good guy. By the way, that, that girlfriend is Janina Gavankar, who uh, played Poppy in the L World. L Word. She was a police officer on the Gates. Uh, she was uh, in the League. She's been on Arrow, True Blood. She's one of those people you see where you're going to be like, I recognize yeah, her. I recognize her from. I know that girl from somewhere. Yeah, from where? But so. <sighs> That's the plot of this movie. Yeah. What no, makes no. the movie special is that, and when I say this, it's going to turn people off, but please don't let it. it. It's about racism, but it's not about racism in the way that like Black Klansman was, or quite frankly, most movies are where, yeah, there's that evil white guy and he's a racist person. It's so it's, you know how Black Klansman was like, like, you know and absolutely agree with everything it's saying, and you're very clear that you're on the same side with it. It's so on the nose that there's just no subtlety about it. And that's not necessarily a criticism. It's it was, just what it, it is. It was for me, but for a lot of people, like, yes, that's what I want. I want to be angry. This movie is about the subtleties of racism yeah. and all the ways in which this is a really complicated subject from oh. but the subject of like a black guy living in in this town who's friends with a white guy who also grew up poor as shit best friends since they were kids who grows up speaking and and well, acting and dressing like 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 he, uh, like the same way his friend does he basically acts so the, his white best friend basically acts like every old racist thinks all black people act right and so He's like, yeah, boy. So as the movie goes on, we watch David Diggs dealing with what he saw, but we also see the friend dealing with his his own best friend who they've known each other for over a decade, distance himself from that culture and that world. And it, you can see how it causes them to butt heads a little bit. And Daffy Diggs' own struggle with, like, I mean, it starts with largely him witnessing a, a flat-out murder, a yeah. police officer murdering an unarmed black man, and him just processing that anger, like, through this whole film as you watch that, like, he's just, just trying to process this. And it's astonishing. It's such a great role. Daffy Diggs and uh, uh, Raphael Castell are both so good, but Diggs in particular is just he just delivers such a tremendous performance that when this film reaches its culmination point it's one of those moments that's both emotionally devastating and just pure art well, like it, you've never really seen it before it it, it reminds me a lot of big Brigsby bear mm -hmm. where almost every scene in this movie because of the culture we live in and because of what we know it's like it is insanely stressful and ultimately this isn't about See, look, 
everyone dies at the end and it's horrible. It really is about continuing through that, but it still plays on that natural feelings that we have. In fact, uh, the only real complaints I have of this movie is there's a scene towards like the last of the second, uh, third where basically he and his girlfriend look at the camera and go, this is what the movie is about. Let me tell you explicitly, it is about this tendency and you don't need to feel bad for doing this because you can't help it, but you're doing it right now. Right. Uh, And (laughs) that was a little on the nose, but that's it. Beyond that, like there is a scene with a kid that I'm not going to go into detail because you need to see it cold. That was so visceral and so horrifically real that my wife and I had to pause after that scene. Cause you were just and so upsetting. We, we just sat there and cried for 10 minutes and we're just like imagining what that would be like if that happened to us. So on the other side of that, there's a scene here where they finally reveal what happened, why this guy went <laughs> is on probation for all this time. And it is so fucking laugh out loud, funny through the whole oh sequence. God. And it, but it ends in a way you're like, you feel all these mixture of emotions, but mostly you just want to be like his ex-girlfriend and be like, why are you such a dumbass? Well, like, <laughs> we know the whole, you're not stupid. Why did you do that? They spend the whole time building up this, this over the top exaggerated. There's no way this is real. This is some, uh, Michael Pena from Ant-Man S story. This total bullshit. Yeah. And then it's like, no, that's actually what happened, note for note. I, I was going to say, that sequence is played kind of like that. With like They've yeah. got this character on the outside who's kind of playing that Michael Pena role telling the story. I was like, it's a really funny scene. But, but it's also followed by an insightful and interesting observation where he's where he turns to his partner and is like, this is what you see now. Yeah. Like, this is who you see when you look at me at first. And it, it, it all ties back to the central theme of the movie. And, and yeah, I, you can't get past this without saying explicitly the ending scene with uh, David is maybe the best scene in any movie I've seen, uh, I've watched this year. I think it's my and, single favorite scene. And from also, like, it manages to the movie manages to even acknowledge that police officer who was involved in the shooting, this, the point of view of him trying to deal with what he did and not being sure if he really felt like he was justified. Right. And like, did I do Was I justified to and shoot this he, guy or did, was, am I a bad person? Ethan Embry has the sequence where he gives a, Largely silent but devastating performance. I'm still saying Ethan Embry is one of the best actors that nobody knows is as good as yeah. he is. Who's been like every year for like the last three years, one of my favorite movies of the year has been a little cult film that Ethan Embry played a strong role Shit. in, and this they, is no exception. They even have a scene between the two friends that ends up talking about white privilege in the context of what they're going through, which is just about one of the maybe three best scenes explaining what white privilege is. Yeah. Like, oh my God, just everyone go watch this movie. This is the closest thing to a perfect film I have seen this year. This might even be my number one, maybe. Like, like it's right up there. Jesus. It's definitely in my top three. I haven't quite finished my list. By the way, I want to apologize to the fan who suggested y'all should say the names of the movies again at the end of each uh, review because I totally forgot this time. Oh yeah, but this that was blind spotting. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one you need to know about, and you should go buy. Actually, it. yeah. Out of everything we've seen, if you're only going to watch one movie, go buy, go rent, go down. Don't care. Just go see Blind Spotting. Yeah, it's our pick of the but, year. But pay for it though. <laughs> Give them money. Because Yes. We want them to make more stuff like this. There's audio commentary with the director. There's another audio commentary with uh, David Diggs and Rafael Casal. Uh, there is a 26-minute making blind spotting. <laughs> Excuse me. There's a director's diary, which is basically the director having fun on set, doing one of those casual sort of like, oh, what's going on behind the scene, talking to the crew and stuff. And there's about six minutes of deleted scenes, which are interesting but not essential. Yeah, um, I, there's, there was one in particular that was like, oh, that's pretty cool. I totally see why they cut that out. Yeah, like, but that's a great scene to check out. You know what I would really like to see with a movie like this? Because this is a far more nuanced look at racism in America. Mm-hmm. I really would have 
I want to see a, uh, a sociologist, someone who specializes in African-American culture in America today, really going through and talking about this is, this is acknowledging this and this speaks to this and giving kind of more of a thesis view of what this movie is and what it stands for. I agree. That would have been a lot of fun. This is one of those movies three years from now, people are going to talk about it and pretend like they totally knew how badass it was this year. Oh, th- th- this is, <laughs> I, I try not to say this too much, this movie is important. It is. I agree. Uh, all right. Well, that is it for this week's Digital Noise. Thank you so much, Aaron. My pleasure. Uh, happy holidays, everyone. Although, you may or may not get a chance to release the next one before Christmas. We shall yeah. see how it goes. That's good. Take your time, because I'm going to have a baby born in, like, the next week. You're not, on, so, you're not on the next one. Yeah, like, I, I, I may not be here for a little bit. And, yeah, big congrats to Aaron, who's about to have, it, have uh, his uh, second? Second kid. Second kid. So yep. this will be the good one. Yeah, yeah. back off, man. <laughs> Don't make me cut you. I love my son. <laughs> yeah, but you made that deal, and so now you're going to eventually have to give him yeah, up. Yeah, eventually when he turns 18, the devil is going to come and take him, and yeah. that's why I know everything there is about movies. So now this you is, got the second one. You know, that's the one I get to keep, is what you're saying. Yeah, let's yeah. hope this is the good one. The first one, you're like, he's, a little, he's a little water-headed. I really <laughs> hope my wife and my mom don't watch the, don't listen to this episode. I'm sure both your children will be wonderful. <laughs> <laughs>